Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. CambridgeSavings.com/CSB1. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, working to unleash the immune system's power to fight cancer and help develop promising new therapies. Videos, white papers, and patient stories are available at discovercarebelieve.org. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. A lot of us throw around the word catastrophe a little too casually, as in it would be a catastrophe if those two sat next to each other at Thanksgiving and started talking politics. Then you've got bigger, more certifiable catastrophes like losing your job. And you've got really big catastrophes like hurricanes and terrorist attacks. But there are also catastrophes that happen on a scale that is kind of unimaginable, like this one. A very large rock slammed into the Gulf of Mexico and did, in fact, set off an utterly catastrophic explosion that probably blew a hole in the atmosphere and did a lot of other terrible things immediately. Annalee Newitz is a science writer who has looked at what catastrophes of the past can tell us about catastrophes of the future. So the one you just heard about was 65 million years ago, and it's famous not just for being part of a mass extinction, but for playing a key role in wiping out the dinosaurs. In Earth's history, we've had five mass extinctions where 75 percent or more species died out uh, over the course of many hundreds of thousands of years. And all of those happened before humans were around. And they were all things that we could never stop even today. Newitz thinks, though, that humans, or maybe a select few humans, could outlast these events. We've got smarts and we've got tools. But, but. It's going to be terrible. And it's going to be uh, in some sense, more terrible than other mass extinctions because we've had such a profound role in causing this one to happen. Uh, but some of us will make it through, and the conditions that we're under while we're surviving are going to be pretty horrific. And here's the scariest slash most hopeful part of this story. Newitz and lots of scientists believe we're in the middle of a sixth mass extinction. So remember she talked about there being five already. And get this. All of these uncontrollable, horrific events had one thing in common, which is that they destroyed the planet by changing the climate very quickly, changing the atmosphere. And the life forms that died out almost always died out because there was an initial event that either heated the planet up, cooled it down, loaded the atmosphere with carbon. And then when keystone species started dying out, that meant that there were knock-on effects in other species that survived because of those keystone species started dying out. And so the mass extinction that we're probably in right now is similar in that way. Certainly it wasn't caused by an asteroid strike or a megavolcano, but it is leading to climate change. Newitz is the tech culture editor at Ars Technica, and she's the author of the book Scatter, Adapt, and Remember, How Humans Will Survive a Mass Extinction. And she says that extinctions are only fully witnessed when you're looking in the rearview mirror. But the trend line isn't our friend. Evidence has been mounting for several decades at this point that we're seeing things that are all signals of mass extinction. So one easy example is that extinction levels among land animals are much higher than would be typical. So there's always some 
creatures that are dying out. That's just how it goes. That's how evolution works. You're never going to have a time when no species die out. But there is a, a kind of a background level of extinction that you expect to see. And we're far, far above that among land animals. And a number of studies uh, in prominent scientific journals have verified that. So we know that that's happening. We also know that carbon levels in the atmosphere are rising and that temperatures are fluctuating in ways that they haven't for thousands of years, if not you know, tens of thousands of years. So we know that the carbon cycle on the planet has been perturbed. We just don't know exactly in a sort of perfect uh, ability. We, we don't have a perfect ability to predict exactly how that's going to go. But right, how these dominoes past- are going to fall. Right, which domino will fall first. But what we do know from looking at the fossil record is that pretty much any time you perturb the carbon cycle, you do see a mass extinction. And mass extinctions start with lots of extinctions, and and that leads to more extinctions. So there's a lot of signs. And um, the question really is, you know, what are we going to do about it? Because we know it's happening. So... Is this the way then an apocalyptic event feels? Because if we left both of our studios today, you're in San Francisco and I'm in Boston. If we left them and we went to a fancy hotel, we'd see people having fancy meals. And if we went to a park, we'd see kids running around. Is that the way that a mass extinction can feel when it's happening? Absolutely. And I think that's one of the things that makes it so hard to prevent a mass extinction because they're slow. And one of the definitions of mass extinction is that you really don't know whether it's reached mass levels for a million years because you have to wait a million years to see just how many species die out. So, you know, in retrospect, our, our you know, in a million years, uh, our progeny may look back and say, wow, yeah, that was a really bad one. Um, But as we're experiencing it, we're just seeing small changes, like the weather is getting slightly more unpredictable. Uh, There are slightly fewer amphibians, or actually quite a few uh, fewer amphibians. But we're not seeing something that we would expect from from science fiction movies or right, from right. fantasy where a giant fireball just wipes everything out. Right, right. One day everybody is going to work and the next day, you know, you're sort of living in a deathscape where where there's nothing going on and you're picking berries off the trees. That That's what I think people think of when they think of extinction. Yeah, and I think that's just a very kind of handy allegory in the world of stories for talking about what an extinction is or for talking about what an apocalypse is. But of course, real life is never as tidy or as simple as a story. So when you talk to experts about what's happening to us now and thinking about this as, you know, that we're in this sort of moment, not of apocalypse, but of, wow, you know, really defining um, period of extinction in history. Give me a sense, or do people or do scientists have a sense? How does this play out? So right now, there's a lot of different ways that this period gets defined. I like the fact that a lot of geologists are now calling this the Anthropocene, which is just to say the human age, right because humans have had such a profound impact on the environment. We've left behind plastics that will probably endure in the geological record for millions of years. Um, we've left behind, um, Uh, residue from nuclear blasts that will stay around for a very long time. And so there is this kind of marker where we enter the Anthropocene. And if we continue to release emissions from fossil fuels, if we continue to um, 
do industrial processing without any thought for environmental impact the way we are now, what's going to happen is going to look kind of like mass starvation. You're not going to be seeing zombies. You're not going to be seeing things like the environment gets so dirty that people are, you know, coughing to death. Although that might happen in certain pockets, certain urban pockets. Um, You might start to see, you know, really horrific uh, results of carbon loading in the atmosphere. But what's Mm. really the main impact is going to be that we're going to wreck our farmland. We're going to wreck our ability to grow the plants that we like to eat because the habitats have been so transformed by climate change. And it can be transformed in all kinds of ways. We're going to have droughts. We're going to have rain in places where we didn't have it before. So we're going to have flooding. And these are all natural results of uh, carbon loading and temperatures rising in the environment. And so we're going to see things like food riots. And we're going to see um, people scrambling for water in places that used to get rainfall every year. And so it will... It'll feel like a social and economic collapse as much as it feels like an environmental collapse. But these social effects really are just the result of making it harder and harder for us to live in this habitat on the planet because we evolved to live in a a much cooler habitat with a little bit more oxygen uh, than is typical of the Earth's environment. And so now we're changing that uh, habitat and making it hard to live. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller, and I'm talking with science writer Annalee Newitz, author of the book Scatter, Adapt, and Remember How Humans Will Survive a Mass Extinction. So how long does the timeline that we're on feel like to you? I mean, are we talking about 1,000 years? Are we talking about 100 years? You know, it's a moving target. We're getting better and better data all the time about um, what that timeline is going to be. And of course, it depends on a lot of political decisions that we're making now about things like fossil fuel use and um, you know emissions of uh, things like methane, uh, which are now being curbed. So in a worst case scenario, a lot of these effects are going to be felt by the end of the century. And in a best case scenario, if we can just all start to be angels tomorrow and switch to alternative forms of energy that are carbon neutral or carbon negative, you know, then we're still going to be looking at at least a thousand years of perturbation. It's not going to be perfect. Uh, Things are not going to get back to normal for a while because the planet's environment is a very complicated machine. And once you've messed it up or once you've, again, perturbed it, uh, as geologists like to say, it really takes a while before the wobble starts to stabilize again. So in other words... We're kind of screwed for a long time, but we could certainly be a lot less screwed. We really do have an opportunity now to change things for the better and to make a future where we're not dying of starvation, a future where we have some problems, we have to deal with uh, in, you know, um, habitat remediation, but we're not looking at mass death of all of the animals and plants that we have grown to love over our 100,000 years of evolution. Okay, so it sounds like if there's a catastrophe in the offing, we pretty much have caused it. Has there ever been a time when a singular species has had that much power, has done so much to change the world around them? 
why yes. <laughs> um, we share Good that to distinction. know that we can yeah. share the blame with somebody. I can't wait to hear we, who. Yeah. So, um, so about two billion years ago, there arose a species that now we call blue-green algae, but it's also known as cyanobacteria. It's a bacteria that photosynthesizes, which means for the first time in Earth's history, when these little guys came along, they were actually producing free oxygen as a byproduct of their digestive process or of their energy harvesting process. Mm. So basically, they were farting out oxygen into an environment that had been before that very, very low in oxygen, high in methane and, and a lot of other gases that were great for the life forms that were on the planet at the time. But over time, cyanobacteria were just an incredibly successful species, just like humans. They invaded every niche on the planet and produced so much oxygen that they absolutely transformed the atmosphere to one that now we consider to be breathable. And so the very first horrific climate disaster uh, of pollution and altering the atmosphere on this planet uh, was the oxygen apocalypse. And it you made things great for us, but it did cause an entire class of creatures to die. But the difference between humans and algae, obviously, is that we know what we're doing. So we have a chance to change what we're doing and maintain the planet um, with the environment that is uh, conducive to human survival and survival of all the species we depend on to live. And when you said before that, you know, humans have tools, I mean, they they have in many ways things that set them apart from most other species. Um, and therefore, it's likely that humans would survive, even if something pretty traumatic happened, and, and you, you've described something pretty traumatic that's happening. Do, do you have a sense of what kinds of people would survive and why and like how they would get through it when maybe other people didn't? Well, that's a good question. It's hard to say what kind of people would survive because I think all kinds of people would survive. Huh. I think okay. the way that humans will survive is by banding together into communities and creating habitats and shelters and food sources that can sustain us. And I think you've got to look at it kind of like uh, how settlers survived when they first came to the Americas. Like imagine uh, 17,000 years ago, you're a group of people coming to the Americas for the first time from, you know, your, your people came from Asia, you're coming over to the Americas. It's a, it's a land that has no people in it, nothing, right. uh, nothing like what you knew before when you lived in villages and you're having to start from scratch. And so you form tribes and you form groups of people that support each other, uh, helping each other with shelter, helping each other with food and childcare. So that's how we will survive. Hmm. And I think that the existence will be, in many cases, quite rough. I mean, much like the first people who came to the Americas, uh, you know, people may have to, if the environment gets bad enough, we may have to live underground. Um, we're going to be doing things like eating fungus and eating bugs. Um, you know, if we really do ruin our uh, ability to do large-scale agriculture, there's going to be a lot of food that is on the menu that you might not really expect on your <laughs> menu today. Yeah. Um, but, you know, bugs are pretty tasty. I want to stick up for bugs. Mm. But uh, think of it as hardship rather than total death. Right. And, of course, you know, there will – but, of course, there will also be a lot of death. I mean – 
you're looking at, uh, you know, billions of people possibly starving um, or dying of uh, pandemics that take hold because people aren't getting enough nutrition. Um, it's pretty common that you get uh, really bad pandemics when um, people don't have enough to eat or they have been deprived of shelter and things like that. So it'll be crappy. <laughs> <laughs> Not really something to, to look forward to. Um, no. What do, you, what do you feel like the major lesson is that you've learned uh, from examining all these instances of extinction? The major lesson I've learned is that we need to be pragmatic about looking at the future and not spend too much time blaming ourselves and flagellating ourselves for making the mistakes that got us here. Because dwelling on the past and dwelling on who did what wrong, which corporation was most evil, it's not going to help us in the future. We need to just accept the fact that things are messed up and now, our new scientific project, our new energy project, needs to be fixing that and sustaining the environment in a way that's livable. So it almost sounds like, um, you know, family therapy for the planet. It's right, like, right. All right. Let's you can't do anything about the past. You have to right. move forward now. <laughs> we got to move on. We, you know, we need to, obviously, if there's bad actors that are corporations that are particularly vile in how they're polluting, we want to stop them. Mm -hmm. But I think at a certain point, you know, we we have laws to stop them. We, we need to uh, enforce those laws. And then we need to say, all right. Moving on. Humans are not evil. We make mistakes, but we can fix them. And like, let's not let's not blame all of humanity and say that this is just basically a problem with humans and maybe the planet would be better off without us because humans are like any other animal. You know, sometimes we poop in the wrong place. <laughs> And, you know, like, and then you kind of move on and you say, all right, well, I won't poop there again. I, I'm sorry about that. Uh, so I think that's kind of where we're at um, as a species and that we really need to be just maybe a little bit more forgiving of ourselves as long as we are pushing toward uh, trying to make things better and not make them worse. Annalie Newitz is author of Scatter, Adapt, and Remember, How Humans Will Survive a Mass Extinction. She's also the tech culture editor at Ars Technica. Thanks for coming in. Yeah, thanks for having me.